Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in the Historico Galley section of Melbourne, Florida. It's also made possible by Florida's Space Coast Office of Tourism, representing destinations from Titusville to Cocoa Beach to Melbourne Beach. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Brokemarkle, and coming up on the program, the highwaymen artists have been painting beautiful Florida landscapes since the 1950s. The way Florida used to look, it don't look that way anymore. So we all captured it on canvas. We'll discuss a 19th century court case involving the selling of live oak trees. Traditionally, it was used for shipbuilding um, as early as uh, the 16th century. And we'll look at the Spanish mission system in colonial Florida. All that ahead on Florida Frontiers. Highwaymen artists are a group of African-American painters who specialize in beautiful Florida landscapes. These artists were inspired by white artist Beanie Bacchus of Fort Pierce, but developed their own unique style of painting very quickly in large quantities using inexpensive materials. With the exception of highwayman Alfred Hare, who studied with Bacchus, the highwayman artists were mostly self-taught. The original group of highwayman artists emerged in the mid-1950s in the Fort Pierce area. Their work was not sold in galleries, but from cars driven from one end of Florida to the other. Al Black is one of the original highwayman artists, but that's not how he started with the group. Yes, sir, I was the salesman for the whole group. I uh, would load all the paintings up in the car and take off in the mornings, and if they give me 50 paintings, I would sell 50 paintings. Al Black explains the secret of his success as he took the highwayman paintings from Fort Pierce down to the Keys and up to Alabama and many places in between. Well, I was always a good talker, and I would uh, go around and I would go to the real estate offices, doctor's offices and attorneys and uh, motels and different offices and I would go in and say, my name is Al Black, say I'm uh, representing Ahare, uh, Newton, uh, whoever I was selling for at that time. And I said, I would like to know would you all be interested in some paintings if it wouldn't take up too much of you all's time. And most of the time, uh, they would let me come in and sell some. While Black was transporting highwayman paintings around the state to sell, they would sometimes get damaged. Often he would load the paintings into his car while they were still wet. That was how Al Black started painting. I would fix the paintings uh, when I mess them up on the road because we had to sell them uh, real fast because in that time we were selling them real low and we had to keep on painting. And while they would be painting, I would be out on the road. And I learned how to paint by fixing all the different artists' paintings when I mess one up. After years of successfully selling the work of other highwaymen artists, Al Black decided he could create Florida landscapes himself. After I fixed them for so many years, I was the salesman back in the 60s up until the 70s. 
And after I fixed so many, I could start paying myself. Al Black's story is unique among the more than two dozen highwayman artists. He could not sell his work for more than a decade. Well, I was in uh, the prison system for 12 years, but I still painted. They allowed me to paint right there in prison. And ain't too many people that were, was able to paint in prison. But by me being one of the highwaymen, and I was famous and everything, they went on and let me paint it. I sold most of them already, but everything I paint it sells anyway. So I don't hardly have any more of those prisoner paintings, but the ones was uh, signed with a block A, uh, those paintings sell for more because they was, it won't be any more of that because they're all prisoner paintings. The highwayman artists are known for their idyllic depictions of the natural Florida prior to development and urban sprawl. Their paintings focus on marshlands, river scenes, beaches, sunrises and sunsets, palm trees, brightly colored poinciana trees, Spanish moss hanging from cypress trees, and Florida's indigenous wildlife. Al Black says that their paintings preserve Florida history. That's right, because of you, the, the way Florida used to look, it don't look that way anymore. So we all captured it on canvas. The original group of highwaymen artists followed the examples of Alfred Hare, who studied with Beanie Backus, and Harold Newton. Mary Ann Carroll is a pastor from Fort Pierce and an original highwayman artist. Her mentor was Harold Newton. I saw his car with a fiery flame painted on the side, and it, I've always been intrigued by things that was different, and that was different. And so one day I saw him sitting on 20th 20, 20 Street talking to somebody, and I saw it, and I stopped and went asking questions about the car. He let me know he painted it. So then it was a painting laying in the back seat, and I th always thought this stuff was done with a camera. I didn't ever think it would be done by people. Well, see, when I was small, I'd look at the catalogs and stuff, and I guess that's why I thought that way. I used to like look at Norman Rockwell's work, but it never dawned on me that it could be done that way. When I saw Harold, then he told me he did it. I saw him um, painting on a tree, and I stopped, drove in the yard, and I stopped, and he, uh, I didn't inter interrupt him, I just, he knew me from seeing me over there on 20th Street, so what, he didn't have to ask me who I was, what I was looking for, and I just uh, watched him paint, so when he got through, I asked him, would he show me, teach me? So, and he said, yeah. So I went over there one day and he tacked me up an 18 by 24 board. And it was a river scene. And I'll never forget, he co-phased two palms on it because I didn't know how to paint no trees. He mixed the colors for me and that's how I went. It was more or less like pastel colors. And so I just went on while myself painting what I, colors I like. I couldn't ever get them all like I wanted them a lot of time, but other people see them and like them, so I didn't have a problem with that, you know? So, but he was, uh, he inspired me through the works that he'd done. And he's the first one that I have known that was an actor highwayman. We never looked at it like that, but we accepted the name because it's the way you made your living. They really didn't feel like we was gallery material, so we had to do what we had to do. I guess you could call it a, a, a mobile gallery. <laughs> and so this is the way it had started, and it went on from there to where it is now. Mary Ann Carroll is the only female highwayman artist. She says that the artists never thought of themselves as any kind of organized group. 
The name Highwayman was assigned to the painters by art dealer Jim Fitch in 1995 in an article he wrote for the magazine Antiques and Art Around Florida. We weren't really a group per se. We were all independent bodies with our own self, uh, self and same desires and uh, tasks. It's like a bunch of people in Orange Grove picking fruit, but everybody picking his own fruit. You know, you need to go and look to get none of mine that I pick, pick your own fruit. So we basically was associated by our, um, by our gift. And they really, I didn't really have a problem with the guys. They weren't, they didn't go out the way to let me know I was, they was going to help me or nothing like that. So I just looked at it as a woman surviving in a man's world and I knew I had to do what I had to do because I had responsibility down the line. I had responsibility to seven children, raising a parent. And this is why I can't see people not falling out because they have to raise one or two kids. And I mean, it's just, I did it. And it was not, I know it was the grace of God, but I thank God because Jim Crow days and all that stuff. But I notice in life that there are people that take you for who you are and for not what somebody else wants you to be. And there were many whites that was there for us. And there were many that looked like they wanted to say, well, get out of here. You know, and it's, it's just a thing where it worked out fine in our behalf. And there were many nice people as well as unnice. And that go on every, every side of the world, every side of the race, creed and color. We all have some hang-ups and problems. And, uh, but me, uh, they used to tell me that, uh, so how do you be feel about called a highway woman, highwayman? I sort of, it doesn't really bother me, you know, because when I, a little common judgment, when I looked, you know, when Adam and Eve, Eve came from man's side, and so she was called woman. And I noticed on man and men, the last three letters spells the same. So therefore it doesn't bother me, and it didn't bother me really. But I never thought of nothing like that as me being a woman, they being a man. I just thought of us as being artists to, to make a living for ourselves. In addition to being a painter, Marianne Carroll expresses herself in other creative ways as a poet and musician. It's all just a part of me. Uh, like you might get tired of wearing black shoes and put on some brown ones or something like that. I just look at it as a mind soother. And I uh, travel five states singing gospel made two records and have some now sitting back been had them for about 10 years i want to put them out on a cd now and i pass as a church small congregation of people uh and i thank god that we lost one here a few weeks ago that was very dedicated and i um i even painted houses and did a little plumbing i mean all this i raised seven kids as i said single parent and i always felt that an honest dollar was more than any dollar in the world in my hands, an honest dollar. Not one that I got out and cheated somebody or stole or something like that, or body bargaining. <laughs> so I'm, I'm just grateful to God that he had those gifts for me. Like the other highwayman artists, Mary Ann Carroll is preserving a part of Florida that is quickly disappearing to development and urban sprawl. You look back, even now, it's still a little bit, but from when I was coming up, the places that we was raised, they're not there now. And uh, 
schools that we used to attend, basically almost gone. And uh, it's just the scenery that used to be there is not there now. And we either have to memorize it from the spot it was in or some of it is still there. We can, you know, like Savannah's, they're still there. They haven't been bothered too much. And uh, the inlet, St. Louis Inlet, is still there. It haven't really been bothered, the water site. But I guess if it hadn't been for water management, it would have been tampered with also. And a lot of the backwoods, country scenes and things are gone. They're not there now. And it have taken a whole lot of nature from, from our view. Roy McClendon is also one of the handful of highwaymen artists who originated the movement in the Fort Pierce area in the mid-1950s. Soon after Jim Fitch coined the name Highwaymen Artists, books soon followed. In 2001, Gary Monroe wrote the book The Highwaymen, Florida's African-American Landscape Painters, and in 2005, Bob Beatty wrote Florida's Highwaymen, Legendary Landscapes. In 2004, 26 artists called the Highwaymen were inducted into the Florida Artists Hall of Fame. McClendon says he was surprised to discover how many Highwaymen artists there were. Well, Gary Munro read this book, and you know, well, uh, Jim Fitch opened all the seabirds, he named us the Highwaymen. So. And then even in the book about the Highwaymen, Gary Munro, so. then we all was inducted into the Hall of Fame. See, what happened is... Um, a lot of a lot of people in the book I didn't even know, but they had the name in the book, so they put everybody in the book in the Hall of Fame. So that's what happened there, because a lot of them I, I never heard tell them tell them how would we come out and then then some, then a lot of people want to get on the wagon because the price went up, you know. Oh yeah, because pictures like one new stuff for thirty five dollars. We're sitting for thirty-five and forty-five hundred for it, the same painting, you know. So now everybody want to be high. <laughs> As McClendon points out, the average price for a highwayman painting in the 1950s and 60s was thirty-five dollars, and today it's not unusual for them to sell for thirty-five hundred dollars. More importantly, the story of the highwayman artists is one of creative people making economic opportunities for themselves in a difficult era of racial segregation in Florida. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Visit us on the web at myfloridahistory.org to find out about upcoming events, watch original video, listen to archived editions of this program, and much more. That's myfloridahistory.org. Join the daily conversation on Facebook at Florida Historical Society. Joining us now is Ben DiBiase, Director of Educational Resources for the Florida Historical Society and archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. 
Ben, today we're discussing a 19th century court case involving the selling of live oak trees. Yeah, that's right. Uh, and the live oak tree, as many of the listeners will probably know, I'm sure have seen one, uh, is really a, a symbol of the South. Uh, a live oak tree is, a, a, of course, a type of oak. Um, and live oak really is kind of a blanket term that uh, describes a number of trees that grow throughout North America. But we're talking specifically about the southern live oak, um, which is a, a species that grows along the coastal areas of the eastern seaboard as far north as Virginia. Uh, around the peninsula of Florida as far west as Texas. So it's um, quite, a, uh, quite a large region. Uh, and it grows throughout Florida in the interior, but also along the coastal regions. It's a dense wood. Um, and traditionally, it was used for shipbuilding um, as early as uh, the 16th century. Uh, Spanish, uh, French, and English explorers coming to the New World uh, would uh, uh, look for large virgin stands of this uh, type of, of oak tree uh, because of its, uh, again, because it's so dense and was perfect for uh, certain uh, aspects of shipbuilding. And there was a prolonged court case about the selling of these trees by Thomas Holmes, David Palmer, and Darius Ferris. Yeah, that's right. This is a fascinating little point in the history of the uh, harvesting of live oaks in Florida. And like I said, going back to the 16th century, even during the Spanish colonial period, uh, sailors knew uh, how important the live oak tree was. But it really wasn't until the early 19th century, when Florida became a U.S. territory, uh, that the live oak really became a commodity, and it was highly sought after. And by this point, a lot of the large forest uh, along the coastline had been uh, had been depleted, uh, but there were still enormous tracts inside of the interior of Florida uh, that could be accessed by rivers and uh, uh, could be easily accessed through some of Florida's inlets along the east and west coast. Uh, now, this particular case in 1842 uh, involves the three men, uh, who you mentioned Holmes, uh, Palmer, and Ferris, who were all three prominent businessmen in Jacksonville in the early uh, 19th century. Holmes was actually an attorney working in, in Jacksonville, and he was an agent for Palmer and Harris. Uh, Palmer and Harris were kind of interesting characters. They were entrepreneurs of sorts. They owned a number of different uh, businesses, one of which was a, a live oaking business. So they acted as agents for a lot of shipbuilders uh, who were operating in the northern states. Uh, so Palmer and Ferris had been uh, collecting live oak uh, uh, branches in, uh, during the winter months uh, and were leaving actually of what is now Ponce de Leon Inlet, which is then called uh, Mosquito Inlet near New Smyrna, uh, when a federal agent who was tasked with uh, catching illegal harvesters of live oak captured the ship. Uh, the brig was called the Nimrod confiscated everything on board, uh, and then sold the ship at auction. Uh, the case went to the uh, uh, Florida Territorial District Court. Uh, the court decided um, in favor of the U.S. government, so they sold all of the holdings, uh, and Palmer and Ferris were essentially at a loss. They appealed. Uh, the, the court case went on for a number of years, and eventually they were uh, exonerated and uh, were compensated something like $50,000 for their, for their losses. Well, as you've been describing, live oaking was big business when this issue was making its way through the court system. What about today? Well, uh, it, it's changed quite a bit now, and that really has to do with the construction methods. You know, right around the, the turn of the 20th century, uh, when uh, steel became the uh, predominant uh, uh, manufacturing technique for, for shipbuilding, and, and the old wooden ships essentially uh, were, were phased out, the use of live oak essentially died out with it. So uh, even though right around the, the mid-19th century, at the height of, of uh, this live oaking um, uh, culture, um, 
it, it essentially died out within a couple of decades, and that had to do with, uh, you know, advances in, in technology. But we can still enjoy the trees themselves today. Absolutely. You know, and, and even going back to the 18th century, uh, you know, famed naturalist William Bartram notes the beauty of these trees. And, and anyone uh, who's, who's seen a beautiful uh, old live oak, in fact, there's a, a, a live oak, a very famous one in downtown Jacksonville. Uh, it's known as a constitution oak that's estimated to be about 250 years old. And the branches are enormous. They actually grow uh, outward and then uh, appear to bow down towards the ground and then grow back up. And they're absolutely beautiful, beautiful trees. Great. Well, thanks, Ben. Sure. Thank you. Ben DiBiase is Director of Educational Resources for the Florida Historical Society and Archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. This is Florida Frontiers. When the Spanish came to Florida in the 16th century, one of their primary goals was to spread Christianity, specifically Catholicism, to the native population. Robert Casanello from robertcasanello.com has this look at the Spanish mission system in colonial Florida. The Spanish missions in, in Florida, in Spanish Florida, were essentially the almost like the outreach program for the Spanish colony at, at St. Augustine, to go out and ultimately, using missionaries, assimilate indigenous uh, Native American chieftains into this kind of new colonial Spanish uh, society uh, that was being formed. And, and the, what I mean by that is that the missionaries would go out and establish relations with nearby chiefs, and then through their conversion efforts, these chiefs would be essentially brought into the Spanish system and, you know, form essentially part of colonial Spanish Florida. That was Dr. John Worth from the University of West Florida. I spoke with him recently about the Spanish mission system in colonial Florida. Here, Dr. Worth tells me about how the Spanish organized the mission system. The mission in Spanish Florida really represented no more than a small part of a pre-existing Indian village that had existed perhaps for centuries, and the the friar would be given permission to come in and build a church with native labor, um, and then there would be a friary or a convento right next to it and perhaps a kitchen. And so this little bitty compound would literally exist in the midst of a much bigger village. Dr. Worth explains the differences in the mission system. Probably uh, each province uh, would you know, have some differences. There were uh, several major provinces in Spanish Florida. Uh, west of St. Augustine in the interior, of course, was uh, the Tamuquan province, and then farther to the west toward Tallahassee was Appalachie. And so in those provinces, the missions would, generally speaking, uh, reflect a Franciscan influence, a Spanish Franciscan influence in the mission compound, you know, the construction of the church and the furnishings and all that. But each village would have its own sort of flavor uh, associated with the particular native group. Uh, in the case of the Tamuquin, of course, they would have a particular architecture, a particular uh, set of clothing and, and foodways that might differ a little bit, say, from the Appalachians. So there, there's got to be differences, but inside the mission church, I bet you they would look largely the same. One thing we often associate with the Catholic Church during this time are the bells. The bells would call parishioners to Mass throughout Europe. 
Dr. Worth tells us why bells were so important to the Florida Spanish mission system. In the Spanish mission system, one of the primary supplies and equipment that was sent to a mission were religious furnishings. One of the aspects of any formal uh, doctrina or mission church would have been the bell, and there would have been a large bell that would have been used to call people to Mass, because part of being a, a Catholic convert was to attend Mass. And so the bell literally was a way that they could bring people to Mass. Anybody within earshot was expected to attend. So the, the Spanish crown literally financed and bought these bells, and we have some documentary evidence, in fact, of uh, shipments of mission bells that actually accompanied expeditions of Franciscan friars who were sent from Spain directly to Florida. Here, Dr. Worth explains the value of mission bells to colonial Florida. Mission bells were generally expensive, and there was a lot of craftsmanship involved in casting these things. One specific shipment from 1612 had a number of bells, something like uh, 12 or 15 bells, that were actually, each one was named, so that was actually cast into the bell with a specific saint's name, uh, and then specific weight was given for it. And these things, at least in this particular shipment, ranged from about 150 pounds to much, much more, 200, 250 pounds. So they're, they're pretty substantial, and, and they were not cheap. And in fact, whenever a bell broke, the bell, for example, would be, the pieces would be brought back to a foundry and recast because uh, bronze, specifically for bells, uh, was an expensive and hard-to-acquire item in the frontier. Dr. Worth tells us how the Indians reacted to the coming mission system. Missionaries were actually sought actively by chiefs. Um, the chiefs of all these different local chiefdoms and the bigger provincial designations knew that they needed to establish relations with the Spanish, which were, the, of course, the military power in Florida at the time. And they knew that if they weren't friends of the Spanish, they would end up becoming enemies of the Spanish. So missionaries represented, and conversion represented uh, alliance with the Spanish crown and all of the benefits that accrued with that, such as military protection from the Spanish, um, gifts from the Spanish governor, all of those benefits were anticipated by the chiefs. But it's likely that there were factions within each village and certainly within each province that weren't particularly thrilled with the idea of converting or of kind of rendering obedience to the Spanish crown. I interviewed Dr. John Worth and others for the podcast series, A History of Central Florida. Look for it on iTunes. You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Please join us right here again next week. You can visit us anytime on the web at myfloridahistory.org. Don't miss our daily Facebook posts on Florida history. Join us on Facebook at Florida Historical Society. Have a great week. I'm Ben Broatmarkle.
Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in the Historic O'Galley section of Melbourne, Florida. It's also made possible by Florida's Space Coast Office of Tourism, representing destinations from Titusville to Cocoa Beach to Melbourne Beach.